Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. any more time here. We have a lot of talking to do here. We've got a great panel to do it. Welcome to The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. Jim Chapdelaine is an Emmy award-winning musician, producer, composer, recording engineer, patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Jim, Rich Holland is a principal and design director at CoLab. Irene Papoulis is a lecturer at the Alan K. Smith Center for Writing and Rhetoric at Trinity College. As of Monday, she will have appeared on our station three times in, what, eight days or something. So, I don't know. She gets her own parking space here now or something. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to gravitate towards the end of the Democratic National Convention for a meditation about oratory. We've been especially I think we've been lively on email today uh, debating the nature of oratory and maybe specifically whether certain people are held to different sets of standards, whether women uh, get criticized when they appear to yell uh, when they're giving a speech. And we'll also just sort of talk about the general nature purpose and effectiveness of political oratory here in 2016. But uh, before we do that, we want to talk about the night of. Uh, writer Michael Chabon, I, I think that's how you say his name. I think it might not be how you say his name. But anyway, writer Michael Chabon explains the hold New York City has over the writer Richard Price and his protagonists. It gives him shape, explains him, demarcates the upper limit of what he can imagine and the depth to which he can sink. New York is an ideal he can fail to live up to, a con game, a baggie filled with baby laxative, a set of bad habits, the collective bonehead M.O. of 8 million repeat offenders. In HBO's The Night Of, we meet three such characters kind of defined at their upper and lower limits by New York City. John Stone is an unkempt and macabreish jailhouse lawyer whose dreams include a high-profile case with a big paycheck. Just such a case drops into his lap when a naive young Muslim American has a bloody tabloid-ready murder case pinned to him. And Detective Box, a loner who prefers opera and reading to the company of his peers, wrestles with that case that is both open and shut and strangely ajar. There are We've only seen three parts of this eight-part series. That's what's aired so far on HBO. I want to reassure you we cannot possibly spoil it because we don't know what's going on. Uh, but we know whether we like it or not, and that's where we're going to begin. Um, and so, Irene, uh, I'll begin with you. Uh, if you had to tell somebody one reason to watch this show, what would you tell them? Oh, because it's, it's um, first of all, John Torturo. Um, who, who's just? I, I, there's a lot of great actors, but I love in the in it. So that's one thing. But it's so rich and detailed and complicated and textured. It's a crime drama, but it's got so 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 much else going on, and it's just deliciously well done. And you just it it just sucks you right in. Um, 
Speaking of John Turturro, uh, he plays uh, John Stone. Uh, this is a he is a begrimed, messy jailhouse lawyer with a perpetually slightly dirty looking overcoat uh, and sandals, which he wears because he has terrible psoriasis. Here, in one of Irene's favorite clips, uh, we hear John Turturro as John Stone visiting his allergist slash dermatologist. You wearing perfume? Cologne. Paco Rabanne, for men. Yes, I know it's for men. Uh, where? Around my ankles to counteract the smell of the Neosporin. Neosporin smells like maple syrup. What's wrong with that? At the pancake house, nothing. And if I told you it's an allergic reaction to cologne, the same thing to spread? Then that would be ironic. Taking your antihistamines? I can't. They knocked me out halfway into the next day. Do you want to get better or not? I do, I yeah, just... throw out the Paco Rabanne and the chopsticks. Start taking your antihistamines. Pick up some saran wrap and Crisco. Apply a large dollop to each foot morning and night and wrap them up. You're kidding, right? I can't walk around in public like that. Saran wrap is clear. No one will even notice. Do it. Come back and see me in a week and we will marvel together at the improvement. Why not some WD-40 in a glad cinch sack? So, uh, Jim Chapdelaine, uh, poor John Stone, the chopsticks to which the doctor refers are these ever-present chopsticks with which he scratches himself in hard-to-reach places, either uh, his back or some uh, little cranny of his sandals that he yeah. wants to, to get into. And somehow or other, this psoriasis, I, I don't know, I have all kinds of ideas personally about how what it is as a working metaphor, but there's a way in which this guy's outsider and really outcast status is driven home by this disorder. Well, it, it certainly amplifies every everything that he is. And, and I was thinking as you introduced these characters, uh, when you got to box the opera-loving uh, contrarian detective, that in lesser hands, lesser actors, these could be cartoonish figures. Uh, look, well, let's just give the uh, de- let's give the lawyer psoriasis. Let's uh, make the, this guy an opera lover, I- and they're not at all. Um, Totoro just sort of totally inhabits that to the point where, he, when he goes to the twelve-step program for people or whatever, the support group for mm-hmm. psoriasis people, psoriasis or us, um, I think that's actually one of the first times we see people laughing. Um, it's it's the moment of humor. I was kind of waiting for a long time. Are they? Do these people laugh, or is this like really grim world that they inhabit, devoid of humor? But it's not. They just it's just sort of jailhouse humor. Do, do they really even have <coughs> self help groups for psoriasis? I would think. Well, if you if you've ever seen somebody with really bad or known somebody, it is it can be crippling. It's torture. For, for people, yeah. Anything that itches. Right. Is, private torture. Uh, yeah. So, Rich, we've got three outsiders here. Really, uh-huh. uh, yes, uh, Detective Box is this guy whose erudition seems to place him apart from the rest of the cops around him. But the real arts outsider is Nazir Khan, yep. the, this very young young guy, but, young, but old enough to be an adult uh, in the jail system, uh, who in a momentary act of slight rebellion bothers, borrows his father's taxi cab for a night on the town, and the night on the town just goes right off the rails, and he winds up with this murder pinned to him. But we really do see uh, in the depiction of both Nas and his parents what it really means to be an outsider in America in 2016. Uh, yeah, and um, the interesting thing of, about this character for me is that uh, I'm watching um, him slowly grow to rebel against that outside position. Uh, he was 
confronted by uh, by these two black guys in the street that said something to him about um, you know where's Towel, your bomb or something head, where's yeah. your bomb Mustafa yeah, I believe right. is what they had said mm-hmm. and um, and I expected from how he was introduced to us about fifteen or twenty minutes before then that he would just keep walking away. But he stopped in his tracks and turned around and went to confront them. Mm-hmm. And there's something about him that's already seeming like he's being fed up with being uh, cast like this. And uh, I- I'm fascinated to see how he continues to evolve with that. Um, he's prepared to, at this point, stand up to you know just about anyone in, to, in, in certain ways. Yeah, because it's interesting because he's an outsider, but he's also... You know, he's a, he, he's from New York. He grew up in New York, mm-hmm. so he's a regular New Yorker in a lot of ways. But he, since he's Muslim American, he f- he he's put into that outsider category. Th- there was there was a place where that was actually where I read that uh, there was a uh, a scene where that was drawn really beautifully for me. Um, uh, he. he I'm sure it's not a spoiler at this point that this guy is going through the uh, going through um, the process of being arrested and the slow and wheels of justice exactly, yeah. and uh, yeah. and there's a point in which um, uh, this box character hands him a set of clothes the, to wear because the they took yeah, yeah the detective hands him a set of clothes because they had taken all of his clothes away and I'm trying to decide um, what box was thinking this detective when he made the selection of clothing he gives this kid. A Harvard shirt uh, to put on, and then the first place that we see him is in this uh, is in this car filled with folks who clearly are not Harvard folks, right. and it pushed him that much more to the outside. Yeah, they're, they're on their way to Rikers yeah. Island. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, I think it's important to to know about Nas too is that what we see of him in the very beginning when he is doing homework for the basketball team is that he desperately wants to be American, mm-hmm. that his family is, is Pakistani, um, and maybe of moderation. They're certainly not – they just want to live the American dream. But he's born in America, and he's wrestling with both of these sort of institutions, but is eager for the acceptance of his peers and can't re- quite figure out how to get it. But it seems like he's on the verge of getting it when things go south. Right. So this yeah. uh, character is played by Riz Ahmed. He's a very up-and-coming actor. People saw him in movies like Four Lions uh, and Nightcrawler. Uh, you will see him soon in the new Jason Bourne movie, and then you will see him in Rogue One, the most much-talked-about uh, Star Wars spinoff. So you're, you're buying low uh, with Riz Ahmed. You can sell high. But in the movie, he does have this sort of doe-like innocence, uh, yeah. these big saucer eyes and this very gentle demeanor for the most part, so much so that He's twice compared to hoofed animals in their infancy. Uh, ben Shankman uh, checking him in or, or being aware of him at the jailhouse at the beginning uh, calls him Bambi. Uh, and at another point, Michael Kenneth Williams, who we talked about last week, Michael Kenneth Williams, so amazing as Omar on the wire uh, and Chalky White uh, in Boardwalk Empire, now plays this kind of king of Rikers Island and gives a speech to young Riz Ahmed uh, playing Nas uh, about another kind of hoofed infant animal. Your people eat veal, right? Sometimes. Uh, but only blessed, right? I respect that. Thank you. Listen to you. I'm a polite See, the reason it feels like silk is because on the day it's born, they keep it in a dark crate. So small it can't even turn around. 
and stays there, half blind in the dark, drinking baby formula, waiting to die. There are some bad people in here, but I could protect you. Nasir, do you want my protection? Or do you prefer dead in the shower with your brains bashed in, guts on the floor? It's up to you. So in just a couple of seconds, I want to turn uh, Jim uh, and Rich both loose on some of the design and, and lighting and look of this and sound of this thing. But before we do that, we really do have to talk about Richard Price. Richard Price, uh, an amazing novelist and then a guy who launched himself into the world of screenwriting, uh, famously wrote The Color of Money's screenplay and then Sea of Love, but really became known for The Wire. The Wire where uh, he didn't write every episode, but he wrote enough of them so that his, his dialogue signature is, is all over uh, the uh, that series and it's all over this series and and Irene he's always looking for that sweet spot right the sweet spot between the the, the way people talk in in natural urban environments and then a kind of eloquence that he wants them to have without it seeming forced how good a job does he do here oh my god such a good job and that's part of why it's so good to watch uh, even for those of us who were not necessarily crime drama people you know there's so much beauty in it so um i don't know so do we i I can't think of a specific example it's hard to you know i I can actually it was just it was exactly in that scene that you were just playing with the veal um and uh, so he was he was talking the way that you would expect him to talk you heard the bleep and everything else uh, over the air but then he went to this place where it became almost biblical how he was speaking about things he asked um nazir to take to give him his hand he said give me a hand and he didn't initially, and then he repeated it as this way, give me your hand, says I. <laughs> and right, and yeah, he had, right, yeah, he had yeah. a tendency to, to, um, to construct some of his statements that way. And it has this sort of beautiful elegance um, and, and, uh, and, and this primal grit that's attached to Michael that Michael K. Williams, too, in every role, yes. somehow brings that measure of authority to mm-hmm. his role that, right. that's really sort of... Uh, unsettling almost in his authenticity. And that's where the humor is maybe, you know, even <clears throat> though it's not like really funny scenes, there's like a really subtle humor. Like, I think there's a lot of humor. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I, the, I, if, you lo- if you like dialogue, if you yeah. like Elmore Leonard and Richard Price, who are the two, you know, reigning dialogue writers of our generation, you love, I mean, there's a moment where Turturro uh, is looking at this uh, snack machine, a-, a vending machine in the police <laughs> office, uh, police station, and he goes, Bloomberg would be appalled by the snacks here. You know, just like a little line like that. Or One of my favorites is he's talking to the the prosecutor, played, I might say, by Jeannie Berlin, daughter of Elaine May, the original Heartbreak Kid girl. Anyway, uh, talking to the prosecutor, and he goes, he's talking about maybe finding a plea for this. And he... uh, he says, you know, we don't want another, we don't want this turning into another Abu Ghraib. Which is such a tenuous connection. <laughs> but, you know, that, the, humor, the humor you're talking about is humor that's, that's conveyed to us, the watcher. I'm talking about actual humor within where oh, yeah. they're, yeah. where they're, it, they're, it's not a lot of 
hey, did you hear the one about? It's not like that. No, but and, you know those yeah. moments are are hard to come by. Yeah, I'd also add that the, in addition to the dialogue, it's the characterization mm. that I love that I think he does so well. I mean, the whole idea of feeling like a failure that the John Tertullo character has, you know, like having, you know, like all these people who are struggling and there's circumstances beyond them, I mean, you know, beyond their control and they're just not making it the way they want to make it, but they're so sort of passionate at the same time Mm -hmm. and there's so many people, characters that are like that, that you just, you just identify with them in a way, but you cringe also at the same time because you can see how they're trapped and they're in some cases trapping themselves. It's such a beautiful characterization. And, and they, they keep breaking out of that trap, too, which yes. to me is, is the lovely part of it. Um, uh, and, and that's the, the one thing that I'm noticing between John and, and his client, um, that it, they seem initially to be on, on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Where, you know, one's this highly cynical, um, crass kind of guy, and on the other end is this... this Bambi. Yeah, naive, Bambi, sweet kid. Um, and I'm watching them kind of move closer to the center, sort of like draw them, draw each other out of their extremes. There was a conversation that they had about the detective, which to me was my favorite line in this entire piece, um, where uh, uh, where John was, where John Turturro was trying to get this kid to stop talking to the detective. Um, and you know, and, and I get the sense that this kid thinks that he could one up the detective and charm him into trusting and, and or tell him the him. truth. The truth. He yeah. can tell him the truth. I, I'm not so sure about that yet. Um, which is the nice mm. thing about this. Oh, I'm not right, so yeah, sure about so, anything yet, so. right? Yeah, yeah, right? And um, and he turns to him and says, "Look, he is a he's a masterful oppressor." A subtle beast. Right. Oh, and right. That's where right. the yeah. heck does language yeah. like that come yeah. from in this conversation? And then and Nas repeats that to his parents. Yeah. Like, right, it's right. like a t- as he thought of it. A phrase <laughs> yeah. that he's learned. He's a subtle beast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, there's like the, that's a thing. Let me just read a little a tweet from the Twitters because it's a great uh, observation. Brian Murphy uh, is tweeting. It's a great show about working and labor and routines. The beat with the desk sergeant's shift change was so elegant. I know exactly. What he's uh, referring to, there's a moment, Ben Shankman from Angels in America is one desk sergeant. There's a moment where he's leaving and another guy's coming. And I think there's a whole thing where one of them takes off his glasses and the other one puts on his reading glasses. And, right, right, and right. you just sort of, it is, there's something balletic about this. There's like just this little beautiful little moment uh, in the change of the night. So I want to come back to the questions of morality in this, which are very pressing. But I do want to give uh, a few of you, because I know that you have things to say about it, just a sense, Jim, about the look and feel and sound of this series. Well, going to the scene, I want to call him Omar, but I can't. Yeah, that's what uh, I keep calling um, him. Uh, Michael K. Williams is sort of delivering his, uh, th- these, this series of uh, unfortunate options to Nas. It's so dark and green and fluorescent and oppressive. The lighting is, is um, it's not distracting in the least way, but it creates this, this ambience that, uh, like I, I said earlier, to me, it, this is an indie film with a major label budget, mm-hmm. and and it's really they they've really they're masterful masterful about color correction, the way they frame shots, the edits are really brilliant. They, they they might use a machine and and pan to another machine, and suddenly we're in another place. But it is not a deceptive act. It's just to get us to the other place. Um, the pacing is perfect. They allow everyone to act. Um, and I keep getting back to this fluorescent thing, which I've never liked fluorescent light. Mm-hmm. I think we all like this nice warm light. Mm-hmm. 
uh, but we find ourselves in these institutional environments where it's there. And uh, um, it always suggests less optimism to me. And that's, that's pervasive and hovering everywhere here with this stuff, with the cinematography, everything. Let's go to our design guy about this. Well, there's, so to, to get really wonky with what was going on with the light, um, they've taken the key light out. The key light is the, is the thing that causes definition in shots. It separates you from backgrounds and pulls you forward. Um, they've neutralized that as much as possible so the entire production feels like there's this layer of, of this filter, this grime filter, filter that sits over yes. the entire thing that blends it all into one kind of mushy bed. And on the the, the rare occasion that there actually is a, a strong light source in the screen, it misses the characters completely. It might hit an elbow, but completely miss the face and, and the point of action. There's a there's a way that they're trying to turn this into sort of um, those impressionist painters that cropped abstractly and um and when they do force you to focus it's they everything is out of focus except the thing that they want you to look at Mm -hmm. and they're very subtle about that and that's 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 the lens choice but not the light choice. it works great with what you're saying because Mm -hmm. we're you really focus when you haven't been asked to Right. All right. I, I also do want to talk a little bit about the uh, the way morality comes up here in different uh, senses, Irene. And I know from these e- from our emails, I'm the only person who feels this way. But uh, I, I I do feel as though Tortura's character is kind of being f- sold to us as this sort of third string apostle. You know, he has this um, billowing trench coat on all the time. He doesn't seem to own the kind of suits that lawyers wear, although he's even given a card and told to go see somebody about that. And he's wearing sandals because of the terrible psoriasis on his feet. Everybody who greets him throughout the first three episodes starts with, how's the feet? I mean, everybody, you know, or his ex-wife looks looks at it and goes, oh, it seems like it's getting a little worse. That's how everybody addresses him. So mm-hmm. he's both a thir- third-string apostle and a leper, you know, and, and but there's this sense anyway that he's this bearer of a kind of morality that, that isn't available elsewhere, right? We were told repeatedly, the truth is not your friend. The truth doesn't work. The justice system doesn't really dispense justice the way you think it should. But I feel like th- there are a lot of conversations, and we'll hear one in just a second, Irene, where the characters are at least trying to talk about, well, what is right? You know, what's the right thing to do? Um, though at the same time, I don't know, I, ha- I, I feel like I'm not, sh- you know, he first seems to be that way, but then I feel like, at least for me as a viewer, I start to think, wait a minute, is he really the moral center or, or is, is, is he corrupt? And then I sort of went back up and I sort of, I've, I've gone on this sine curve of, of thoughts about that. So, um, so I think that's part of why it's interesting, too, in terms of the you know, we don't necessarily know. And so there's that element of plot, too. Mm-hmm. That's another thing about Richard Price. Like, you don't yeah. really know. He, he sort of keeps you going. He keeps, like, jerks you around from one thing to the other. Like, where is the moral center? Right. He's, an, he's an imperfect apostle. He's a yeah. grasping, concupiscent uh, apostle. <laughs> the apostle's Concupiscent. But, but <laughs> to, to your point, Colin, yeah. he's, he's um, uh, the way this script is written, uh, I'm not being given nearly enough uh, uh language uh, to understand who these people are. So I'm watching shots and what's in the shots to try to get the cues that I need. And also the music. Yeah, and to your point, Colin, um, uh, he's constantly walking with... uh, in situations where his arms are outstretched like he's being crucified. Right. He's the yeah. only one that actually gets searched 
uh, that gets searched with his arms fully outstretched like that. Oh, there's a lot of patting down in yeah. the show and the indignities <laughs> of being patted down. Um, yeah. I, I just do want to play this clip. This, do, this does include uh, the snack machine moment. This is uh, John Turturro as this lawyer, John Stone, with the amazing Bill Camp uh, as this detective box. Here we go. As a feat. Embarrassing. Thanks for asking. How's the investigation? Clear by the minute. Oh, I doubt that. I want to talk to the boy again. Yeah. I want to live forever. I had to ask. You did. But did you before? Didn't have to before. You hadn't swooped down on him yet. Swooped? That's a strong word. I feel for him. I'm sure you do. I do. I let him talk to his distraught parents. Yeah? You tape it? This is a little out of your league, isn't it, John? Bloomberg would have been appalled by the snacks here. You're not going to get rich off it, but that's what you're thinking. It's going to be the shortest trial in history. Yeah? Is that why you haven't charged him? He doesn't feel right for it, does he? Something in your gut isn't liking him for this, and you can't bring yourself to pull the switch. And Jim, this sounds like this very startlingly honest moment between the two of them. They're both telling the truth for once right there, or at least Torturo is telling the truth to camp, saying, you know, there's something wrong with this whole thing, and we both know it. Yeah, uh, no doubt. That's a, a key moment of, uh, I guess that would be a little bit of a come-to-Jesus moment for both of them. Um, I think they both want to tell the truth. They both have their own truth, but they both have a job to do. And and I don't I don't want to say what I hope Detective Box is going to do. Naturally, I hope he's going to evolve into this thing correctly. But but I don't expect him to because that's not his job. And and I think everyone in this thing has a role to play. Even uh, uh, Michael K. Williams' character mm-hmm. has a really strong role to play. And these are uh, um, predefined for them to walk into. So, yeah, that's a really important moment, but it, and it is that one moment where they can face each other and say, look, this is crazy, and, uh, but, but off we go. And we really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you can predict Mm-mm. by watching it, and that's, that's another thing I love about it. Like, we don't know if he's going to end, you know, what's going to happen. So. All right, but one one more thing from Rich, and then we're going to take a break, so we'll have time for our other thing. But in terms of, of the issue of morality, there's... There's this thing that's what seemed to happen in that scene and is happening in other scenes is that um, I'm not clear what their compass really is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're getting a sense that uh, that um, John uh, Totoro wants the truth and believes in the truth, but he also rejects it. These are folks who are caught up in process, um, and that the process seems to supersede uh, what their convictions and their beliefs are. At, at all points. I agree with that. And I do think that one of the messages that we hear again and again in different ways, and believe it or not, it's going to come up in the next discussion that we have, is it's not enough just to be pure of heart. You've also got to understand how this game is played. If you don't, you're useless to everybody, right? That you know, Learn the codes, learn the rules, figure out how the game works. Don't just sit there and, uh, insisting on your own purity. That's not going to be good enough. It almost never is. All right. It's called The Night Of. It's on Sunday nights. I can't, I, I can't tape it or anything like that. I have to watch it right away. I have to know as soon as ha- possible what's happening. It is full of wonderful actors. We haven't mentioned them all yet, uh, but we don't have time to. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about political oratory when we do. Thank you. 
All right, we are back. This is the news, uh, and they're so excited to talk about the night of that they can't stop yeah. during the break. It is the kind of thing when you really want to talk to uh, other people about it once you see it. Uh, with us, Jim Chapdelaine, a musician uh, and producer extraordinaire, Rich Holland, principal and design director at CoLab, Irene Papoulis from Trinity College. You can hear her again on Monday. She'll be talking about losers and losing uh, with uh, with Brian Slattery. Irene's chair actually has her name on the back. That's right. Of She's chair. getting one of those little yeah. canvas yeah. directors. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an yeah. expert on losers. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, really, if there were if there were no other reason to tune into Monday's show, Irene's soliloquy about how she identifies or why she identifies, speaking of outcasts, with Gregor Sansa from Kafka's Metamorphosis is worth tuning in for. Um, she also has an apple in her back. Right. I I mean I was I thought it was one of the funniest things. I, maybe it's because I know you, but I thought it was just hilarious. So we, we recorded that a few days ago, and it's just great. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. It's time to talk about uh, political oratory. Last night, we uh, wrapped up four days, really eight days of, of conventions and political oratory and political speeches. Uh, last night, of course, the centerpiece was Hillary Rodham Clinton's speech. We'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things, Rich, that I've been thinking about mm-hmm. and I was encouraging all of everybody to think about is, you know, whether political speeches – there's a sense in which this seems like kind of almost an archaic art, you know? Everything's boiled down to eight minutes or less on YouTube, uh, and, you know, people's attention spans uh, are f- fragmented and fractured. So the notion that someone is going to speak for 40 or 50 minutes uh, about their political aspirations and their dreams for America, it really seems like maybe something that wouldn't even have much of a role in American public life anymore. But I don't know. They have these conventions, and maybe it does. And I know that you feel, anyway, as though both members of the Obama family, the first family, uh, have done a lot for that. Yeah, they, um, it, they've got it right. Um, what I feel that the Obamas have gotten right with, with oratory is the, abil- the ability to actually genuinely connect with people, not just through the words that they are using, but um, with the ability to get in and have access to the heartbeat. Uh, so that we're getting involved in the sort of um, the biological rhythm of the crowd, and um, and that's a thing that I just haven't seen in in uh, actually I'd never seen it before. The only places I'd seen it were recorded things because right. they I predated agree. me. Yes. Um. So uh, so to be able to to witness them do their thing made me feel really sorry uh, for the folks who came after them um, because that's that was a sort of. Uh, tough act to follow for sure. Well, sir, obviously, uh, President Obama made his mark on the world in 2004 with a speech, a speech, by the way, that was less than 20 minutes in length. It was the length of the famous <laughs> keynote speech uh, from Boston at the John Kerry Convention. And, and the world was kind of never Obama-free after that. I mean, it kind of just sort of changed the political landscape, uh, at least of the Democratic Party. That's how big a speech can be. But I, Irene, as somebody who sort of teaches in the world of writing and rhetoric, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the words that came out of my mouth at the beginning were blasphemy to you, but I, I'm, I'm amazed that political oratory is something that anybody gravitates towards. You know, I, 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 when you said that, I was just thinking, yeah, wow, that's true. I mean, just I, I went to a concert, a big arena concert recently. It was Dur- Nile Rodgers and Duran Duran, and I thought, wow, this is a whole world. Like, there's all these people who spend a lot of money to go to these giant events and hear concerts, and that. So now I'm thinking that in a way, there's something about. Um, about speeches that's similar, you know, that we want, that people still do. They still go and hear Donald Trump or, or whoever's running and they want to listen. And there's, so there's some kind of 
uh, attention span or, or interest that people still have in our world of eight-minute sound bites in some kind of long, shared thing. Because the whole thing about a speech is that there's so many people there. You can't give a speech on the radio, or you could, but it's different. So there's something about the giant arena that actually is appealing as it was thousands of years ago when Aristotle wrote about it. You know, um, So anyway, that's, th- that's my first thought. All right. Well, maybe, uh, Jim, it is time to uh, kick the tripwires a little bit and step on the third rails and all that kind of stuff. So Hillary Clinton coming at the end of a week that had some pretty good speeches in it. Uh, Michelle Obama uh, ruled uh, on on Monday night. Bill Clinton probably on Tuesday night. Uh, Joe Biden and uh, Barack Obama both giving memorable speeches. You can maybe throw Tim Kaine in there, although he's not really my cup of tea uh, on Wednesday night. But Thursday night was Hillary Clinton. But he is your neighbor. (laughs) He's my neighbor. He's your kooky neighbor. Or as we pointed out yesterday, he's your stepdad. He's yeah. your new stepdad. Yeah, right. But why uh, isn't he your cup of tea? What is it about him that you don't – that? I, well, I, I think ultimately that he's a guy in search of a persona that – I mean uh, we did have Alexander. He's a little vanilla. Yeah, we had Alexander uh, Petri on yesterday, Petri yesterday on. She was basically saying why he's your stepdad, that he's uh, like – he's like he'll give you kind of a stern little lecture, but he'll also fold your laundry – for you, you know, and, and you know, uh, I mean, if, if you come in late from your curfew, he won't tell your mom, but he'll give you a little speech about choices and, you know, uh, prefrontal cortex development and how you're too young to be staying out this late. He's, a, he's still kind of looking for that spot, but I don't think he's a particularly exciting speaker. But yeah. last night, I mean, everything was on Hillary Clinton, but she had a lot of tough acts to follow. So how'd she do? Um, uh, well, fortunately, uh, it, for, for better or for worse, she followed Chelsea. <laughs> who <laughs> that sounds really I'm sorry dude and I'm not uh, maybe that was um, deliberate yeah um, right maybe so I mean uh, I think uh, on the heels of Trump having his children and basically just as children there as uh, uh, proxies and surrogates she probably felt that this would help humanize her I, I don't think Chelsea was particularly well coached um, but she did what she had to do and I think Hillary did what she had to do at the end of it. And you can take the politics out of it. She delivered a pretty strong speech. The, the problem, I think, for her is that oh, the Obamas spoke at this. And their bar is so high in terms of being having all these chops and everything. But, but to Richard's point, they have heart. And they're not thinking about the speech. You could see him occasionally looking at a teleprompter. But mostly he's just just – out there in the moment. And to her credit, I think Hillary was kind of in the moment last night. That's not her game. Yeah, uh, but she did sort of inhabit the moment as much as she could or had to. Well, I think she, it was still a success for her. I think that get, gets back to the segue that Colin just had. You know, like you have to have some kind of – you have to have the the the, 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 the what is it? The trappings, the out, out, the thing. It's not just the content. It's a lot of other stuff, like the way your voice sounds, oh, the way yeah, you move, the, the, and all that. The chops. But you have to have the heart. You, you, what you called heart too. You know, that's a really, really component. You can't just have those things without it. You have to have some, or at least be able to give the audience the sense that you feel it and you believe it while you're saying it. And not everybody can do that because some people feel like they're just going... And Hillary, a lot of the times, yeah. feels like she's just going through the motions of saying all this stuff because she has all this knowledge and all that. But there was... I, di- I also felt last night with her that there were some moments where you felt like she was really feeling oh, it. Oh, no doubt. In no some doubt. kind of... Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's where she was really good. Even though the thing that she was feeling was the specifics about what she's going to do. Right, yeah. but that's and where she lives, is policy that's and details. That's what she feels, yeah. So, so I, I have this, this theory, right, that there are two kinds of leaders. 
there's the uh, there's the builder, and then there's the fire starter, right? And um, we as an audience tend to gravitate to the fire starters, and um, uh, we get inspired by that. And Hillary Clinton is a builder, uh, by and large. Um, and uh, along with that, I think that she suffers from this thing that I've been calling uh, Jan Brady syndrome, in that um, uh, Jan was the smart one. She's the one that solved all the problems. She's the one that uh, that resolved all the crises. And um, while the was other she the oldest, she was no, was she was she the middle. The middle. She was okay. the middle one. Um, right. While uh, while while all the others uh, created all kinds of chaos that she had to fix and got to practice their external personas. They got to be the really cute, charming ones, or they got to be the, the older, cavalier ones. Um, and Jan had to hold the whole darn thing together. So uh, at the end of the day, when she has to be put in a position where she performs, she just does not hold up to the aesthetic, uh, um, the aesthetic of leadership uh, that the others seem to have. I think there are also two Poor kinds of Hillary. <laughs> Jan, and Janice, played by Steve Buscemi. Right? <laughs> well, I think she relishes that comparison more than the Tracy Flick one that comes up and uh, over and over again in the movie Election. Uh, we talked about that yesterday, but um, I think there are also two kinds of speakers. There are um, speakers who are essentially conversationalists. I would put both Obamas in that category, Bill Clinton in that category. I think most of the really good speakers. Joe uh, Biden. Uh, essentially, well, Biden uses yeah. dynamics a lot, right? He, but you, he's you, a very chatty yeah. kind of You tw- You tweeted something I thought that was very correct during his speech was that he's a master uh, of orchestrating the crowd and controlling uh, the environment that he's in. Well, especially that was a very volatile moment. Right. He was trying that – was, that was the – Come on, let's come on, you guys. Let's we got to do this moment. Was so, that Biden? Yeah, Joe yeah. Biden. Yeah. So when he do, when he does those things like, where he goes, listen for a second. Just don't cheer. Yeah. Don't boo. Oh, just let, me fin- let me finish. Yeah. Let me finish this. Yeah. So I mean, once again, that's very conversational, very good. And then there are yellers. You know, there are yellers. Mm. Cory Booker, unfortunately, at the moment is a yeller. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is such a yeller that it was like a Wild Kingdom <laughs> moment where like, someone get a tranquilizer dart <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and shoot him. I, I, for the most part, think yellers are not good speakers. I, I think that they are um, – alas, Chris Dodd during his political career was a yeller. They think that they're saying something really important, so they should or, yell or it. Or that the yelling sort of l- gives it gravity mm-hmm. or, or more meaning. So one of the things that comes up, and it's a, it's a source, particularly over the last nine months, of a great amount of often rather angry dispute, is, is Hillary Clinton a yeller and too much of a yeller, or is it simply that when a woman tries to project, she gets accused of yelling? Uh, last night, she was far more conversational than she has, for the most part, been on the campaign trail. But I'm going to play just a little uh, cut from last night to show what it is that people are referring to when they, call, when they say that she yells. If you believe that we should say no to unfair trade deals, that we should stand up to China, that we should support our steel workers and auto workers and homegrown manufacturers, then join us. To uh, I mean, in her credit or in her defense, um, that was sort of an orchestrated build, you know, where she was repeating the same refrain, join us, join us, join us. Um, on the other hand, 
Jim, she does. One of the things that it's hard for some speakers to believe is you have Spinal Tap 11 type amplification right now in in the arena, and you're basically talking to people who are watching television anyway. You don't have to scream over the crowd noise. Yeah, I don't know, though, that you can, although, you know, again, the Obamas are able to have incredibly intimate moments with 18,000 people in there. Um, and, and good orators. I think Joe Biden did too. Bill Clinton did when, to, a de- to a degree. I thought he was kind of ambly at times, a little bit too folksy for me sometimes. Um, I, I don't know that Hillary has those chops. I don't know that that's her game to get out. And I, I think if you see her in a room full of, of people who have been through something terrible – She's on her game there. That's her thing to to relate to people one on one, but to to project that to eighteen thousand people that's a really unique and difficult thing to do. It's a very particular skill set that inquir- that that also requires an instrument, and that's where we yeah. get back to the Obamas, where they are. Um, it's not a gift; it's something they've cultivated. So I, I think it's a, but you do have to have the voice. You have to be Rick Allison or somebody, one of these people who has a voice. What were you going to say? Well, that what I noticed with both Obamas is that they have dynamic control, um, where uh, they can be sort of soft spoken, and then they could drive this thing. And it's um, emotional and it's, dynamics and too. It's, exactly, and it's and it's about uh, not how loud they are, but how far out they place their voice. Uh, sometimes they let their voice stay very close to them right. and force you to to come to them. And then there are times where they push it out and they wrap you up in it. And so I just don't think that Obama is purely conversational. I mean, I think that he no, does he does conversation to pull people in really close. And then he pounds away pretty hard. Yeah. So now I'm thinking that, you know, I, I agree with you. And so I think the build is really important. And Obama mm-hmm. definitely speaks loudly much more. You know, he does the build really beautifully. And so now I'm thinking probably maybe someone told Hillary, you know, yeah, it's good to sort of talk and you're in a conversation. It's good to be conversational, but you really need to build. So she was trying to build, but it just didn't suit her at all. It, it, you know? it doesn't suit her in general. She does it a lot. It doesn't suit her. And, and I am amazed because, I mean, one thing that people have said over and over again, and people like Jim who are engineers who are, you know, watching decibel levels and stuff like that, know that a woman's voice sometimes starts to sound pushed sooner than – I mean, we, we were talking before we went on the show. Martin Luther King could talk really, really loud and never sound like he was shouting. He just sounded like he was talking really loud, you know. And some of that is is the curse probably of uh, uh, of the difference between the sexes. But there are ways that you can fix this and ways that you can address this and speech therapists that mm-hmm. you can work with. And I'm kind of shocked that somebody as achievement-oriented as Hillary Clinton hasn't done that. Who were the women in this that achieved what you're talking about? I'm, and I don't – not Other as a challenge. Michelle. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Michelle and I'm like Elizabeth Warren kind of fell flat. Mm. Yeah, she was up against a different set of circumstances. Was she um, shouting? I mean, she did. She, uh, did, she, she did not shout. She, she did no, not shout. So, but she has but a level of amplification. Boring. I think it's I, also I the message it. that you that you had to deliver. Well, I mean, Michelle got to deliver a message mm. that was yeah. filled with range. Right. Um, right. You know, so in the content was embedded. I'm almost going past mm. content. I'm just yeah. thinking who was able to drill through this wall. 
beside them in, at either convention. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would uh, actually, what, I would which say, woman? I would actually say Ivanka, Tr- Ivanka Trump might mm-hmm. be in that category. She, yeah. she, I thought I mean, she, that's the only one I missed. She gave a very effective speech yeah. on behalf of her father. Yeah. She didn't have to yell. She didn't have to scream. Uh, and I, I just, I, I think it's something that Clinton needs to work on. We, it, we already know. I mean, all you have to do is. I mean, they could. I'm sure they've polled on this. People don't like the way she sounds when she does that, whether that's fair or not. And see her a year ago yeah. versus now, because about six weeks ago she began to temper this. Right. It, whether whether it's fair or not, whether <clears throat> it's sexist or not, it doesn't matter. It's the Game of Thrones. You have a liability. Right. No, you're right. You've got to fix it. It's just like the night of. You get to Rikers, you better figure out how things work here. Don't tell me right. you're Bambi. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back. <laughs> All right, it's time for endorsements now. Rich Holland and uh, Jim Chapdelaine and Irene Papoulis are all here. Actually, before we endorse, really quickly, best uh, John Turturro role. Anybody have a favorite? I'll do mine right now. Herbie Stumple in Quiz Show. I, I, mm. He's so, so mm. great. Anybody else want to? Well, do the right thing. He's yeah, that's so what good. I was going to go with. Yeah. That, well, that would be maybe his. The classic. I, I liked him in Barton Fink. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, so that we've done that. Uh, all right, uh, give us your okay. Endorsement. So I, I uh, one thing I didn't get to say is the Muslim guy at the whose son died in in the war who talked at the convention last yes. night was so good. The way mm-hmm. he and he was a completely a t- he wasn't yelling at all and he pulled out the com- the uh, Constitution from his. He was such a. He, I think it's worth seeing him uh, online if you haven't. He was total um, substance. But, uh, yeah, but I also want to want to um, endorse the the actor that plays the Naz's father, Payman mm-hmm. Moadi, and seeing movies that are not you know that have subtitles. Like so, he's in a separation and about Ellie. He's an Iranian actor, even though he's playing Pakistani in this, and he can sort of play the. But those two movies are so good that you know, and his his parts in those are so are so interesting that I, that he's. I recommend him. He is just terrific. Yeah, yeah, both directed by Farhadi, who's sort of the Scorsese of Iran. Go yeah. ahead, Jim. Um, I have two things. Uh, one, uh, there's a documentary called Miss Sharon Jones coming out uh, about the Dap Kings and Sharon Jones uh, wrestling with pancreatic cancer while still trying to be a vital performer. Yeah. Uh, I've seen outtakes of it and or, or clips of it, and it looks really compelling. It's sort of I think it was made specifically for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's musical. It has uh, cancer advocacy built into it. It's fascinating. Um, I don't know if I'd tell everybody to rush out and read this, but I'm finding it an amazing book. It's by Stephen Pinker. It's called The Better Angels of Our Nature, mm-hmm. and it documents uh, how we have far less violence and and uh, war in our society than we are led to believe by the media. And and right now, the least of any time in our history, yet we have somebody who's running on a platform of this being the worst time in our history. So uh, the better angels of our nature, I'm, I'm finding it fascinating. All right. Rich, cool. what have you got for us? Uh, about last week, I think it was, um, uh, about 900 people gathered at the Bushnell to hear uh, Dr. Robert Putnam uh, talk uh, uh, through the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving on the gen- on the um, the opportunity gap, and uh, 
I can't remember sitting in an actual lecture and being so moved. I literally cried at parts of his wow. conversation and um, and was shaking throughout it for uh, the scale of the responsibility that I feel at this point. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm going to really strongly recommend that everybody go out and read his book. It's actually sitting on Hillary Clinton's nightstand. She's stating that it's one of her favorite books right now. This is the new book, right? Yeah. Um, it's called uh, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis by Dr. Uh, Robert D. Putnam. I was going to go to that lecture, but I also... I knew I could get a bowling lane really easily that night, you know, if I'm speaking. So I thought, let's take advantage. Oh, yeah. You've got to line your ducks up. Even so, duck pins. Uh, I'm going to very quickly endorse that. We're going to plan a much bigger show about this for September 8th, which is the 50th anniversary but of Star Trek. But the new Star Trek movie is actually really good. It gets – not really good. It's like a BB-plus kind of movie. But it gets the thing that people – that filmmakers miss about Star Trek, which is it's a workplace drama. It's about a diverse bunch of people who have to work together and um, tolerate each other's diversity. Uh, and even um, exploit each other's diversity for for a common gain. So uh, they kind of get that right. I I was thrilled by that. Um, I would also encourage people, apropos of the night of, to read one of Richard Price's novels, um, you can kind of take your pick. I happen to like a, a book called The Lush Life, mm-hmm. uh, which is set in the Lower East Side, but Clockers is probably the most famous one. The Wanderers was his first one. Samaritan, which I haven't read, is my, maybe the one that I that I might uh, tackle next. I also will endorse quickly the work of Bill Camp, one of the actors that we were talking about there. Uh, when you watch Birdland and you see Michael Keaton walk by this madman on the street reciting a Shakespeare soliloquy, that's Bill Camp, and he's kind of turned into this actor's actor. You can see him in lots of other things. I just saw him in a very interesting Michael Shannon movie uh, called Midnight Special. I also saw him on Broadway in The Crucible. So watch for Bill Camp. He, he gives really good performances. He's about the opposite of a glamorous actor, but he's just ter- Did I not say Birdman? Uh, said. I said, said Birdman. Okay. So um, anyway, we're uh, done. Thank you very much. Irene Papoulis, Rich Holland, Jim Chapdelaine. We'll be back on Monday with Losers and Losing. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah